There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Most people spent their dying time refusing to die, trying not to die, getting on the other side of dying. The lack of ongoing encounters with real death is an impoverished and uncivilized circumstance. I mean, if people are dying every day, all day long, how can we be bereft of opportunities to be there? The circumstances of your dying will last longer than what most people remember about you. The story that's told of how you die is more enduring than your dying will ever be. If you understand that, then you realize that your dying is in part a responsibility you have to other people. They will learn lingering stories about what the endings of life are from how you do it. And they could learn some very grim stories indeed if you're not alert to the consequences. Welcome to the Inspired Evolution. I'm your humble host, Amrit Sandhu, and you're tuning in to a conscious conversation designed to help you grow. Our mission here is simple. It's for you to live your purpose, live your best life, live the life you love. This podcast is sponsored by Enthusiasm for Life, by great creation itself. To keep the good vibes flowing for myself and yourself, do us a solid. Subscribe to the Inspired Evolution podcast on YouTube, the home of the Inspired Evolution podcast. Now sit back, relax, open your mind, open your heart to this conversation and stay inspired Keep evolving. There aren't really words that we can bring to cover the ground of a topic such as death and dying. And yet Stephen Jenkinson is an incredible master at putting words to it just so. And... Before we dive into today's conversation, I want to pre-qualify it and put a massive asterisk on the conversation. If you are struggling with mental health or, you know, don't like the conversation around death or dying, you know, um, probably two camps of people out there, those that are, you know, 
the invitation is open for you to expose yourself a little bit more to the conversation just to challenge your edges but then also wholeheartedly acknowledging that for some people this conversation may be too deep too bold too rich um too confronting is probably the right word and to the best of my ability i'll leave that discernment with you to decide if this episode is for you um it is not for the faint of heart i would go as far as saying it is a heartbreaking conversation and poetically so Stephen would call that the most life-affirming thing about the conversation that we shared so this conversation comes on the back of me being exposed to two deaths recently touch with the people very very close to me um and their loved ones and i've been looking forward to this conversation for about 18 months so it means a lot to me this particular conversation and it gave me a lot as did reading Stephen's book die wise i hope you get a taste of just how incredible his work is and how transformative Stephen's work can be for me being exposed to these two deaths i was quick to label it as traumatizing if it wasn't for Stephen's work i wouldn't have recognized it for the initiatory effects the initiations that these experiences really were for me as a young man growing so yeah without too much further ado Stephen Jenkinson welcome back to the inspired evolution and we have with us today inspiring our evolution Stephen Jenkinson how are you there sir I'm lucky. Most of the time, I'm lucky, and today's one of those times. I love that. I'd love to expand on what you mean by that. But before I do, just give me two secs. Let me just do the honors. For those tuning into Stephen for the first time, he's an activist, a teacher, and dare I say a teacher like no other that I've come across. Um, he's an author and a farmer. He's the founder of Orphan Wisdom, a school in Tremore, Canada, and the author of four books. One of them being Die Wise, A Manifesto of Sanity and Soul. It's an award-winning book about grief and dying and the great love for life. And I'm looking forward to diving deeper into the conversations around Die Wise today. Um, this was actually followed when he authored, uh, by a book called Come of Age in 2019. We did a podcast on that um, a couple of years ago in 2020, and it was very well received by the audience here. So I will put that link to that in the end screen to this episode for those of you that want to go deeper into Stephen's work after this particular episode, which I'm sure you will. And most recently, he published A Generation's Worth, paired with a four-part live stream. And Stephen, what did you mean by you are feeling lucky today? <laughs> well, I mean, I shouldn't say... Um... Um, that's a certain kind of bounty is that's what I'm referring to. I'm just saying, you know, I worked with a lot of dying people years and years ago, and they're all dead now. And no matter what kind of problems come my way, if I can just remember that all of those dead people would probably trade me all my problems for the chance to inhale once and exhale once, it's not easy to remember. But if you do remember then you look around yourself and you say, child of fortune so far. That's what ends up happening. And it's not, it's not giddy. You know, it's it's just 
it's part of keeping your head above the fray just long enough to just remember little things like that because you know the 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 the, the what should you call it the adversity and so forth is so persuasive that you have to do some work to break even so that's that's my break even work you've nominated yourself to be called the angel of death at times you have even labeled yourself as the grief monger these are all titles which i think the average person is challenged by even to hear yet here you are adopting these as your monikers in some way angel of death what does that really mean to you and why are you so comfortable um yeah taking that on well i i should say i didn't volunteer and they weren't none of those phrases were my ideas they sort of came around people started to use them as shorthand and journalists love that kind of handle you know that sort of thing so so th that's how they came about i just never seriously objected you know because it was in part it was accurate enough angel of death doesn't mean somebody who brings death it, angel of death means um announces that's what that's the angelic function is the um proclaiming function basically Though I'm certainly guilty of proclaiming the legitimacy of endings. Yeah. Uh, as far as um, the grief element of things, I mean, that's a different tone, right? Uh, grief monger, that was accurate enough, it seemed to me. It was, I thought it was important in the early going to do what I could about the kind of Puritanism and and bleaching of the language that was going on in the death trade when I was there. In fact, I think that's one of its signal characteristics, the death trade, I mean, palliative care industry. Um, the thing that I noticed over and over again is the, the inclination to employ an obscuring kind of language and to claim that this is a compassionate way to treat dying people. It was all over the place. I mean, that kind of claim was absolutely everywhere. I just wasn't persuaded by that. I didn't, it didn't strike me as compassion. It strike, struck me as confusing, disorienting. And you could go in the direction of malpractice and I probably wouldn't disagree. So I set up myself the job of crafting a kind of language, not creating a language, but but crafting it from what was available to me, wherein the realities of dying would appear instead of disappear and give dying people a chance to die instead of to spend their dying time not dying. As confounding or, or as utterly um, unexpected as that might sound to anybody who's listening, that was the order of the day. Most people spent their dying time refusing to die, trying not to die, getting on the other side of dying, bypassing dying, and so on. But of course, dying's for real, right? And it's not going away. And once it's begun, generally speaking, it's there for keeps. And uh, it's not, um, it doesn't mean you any harm. 
but it does mean you though. I mean, that's the difference. It does, it does mean you, and in that sense, it belongs. Not it doesn't belong to you as a personal possession, but it is entrusted to you at birth, the same way your breath is and your fingerprints and you know your eye color and those these other things that are nominally uh personal, but not possessions. They're just attributes, and your death is a kind of inspired attribute, it seems to me. And and so I did what I could to see to it that by by speaking to people, dying people, authentically and respectfully, I could oblige them to die. And so that's what I did. And that's where all the language about grief monger and, and grief walker and that it it kind of it wasn't inaccurate. It wasn't complete, but it was close enough that on short notice, I could answer to it. You mentioned in there that um, it's almost like dying is innate to our being. Um, it's not part of us, but it's 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 happening. It's going to happen to all of us. Touch wood. Um, and yet, you know, the colors of my eyes being brown, the hair when I had it <laughs> being black, um, so on and so forth, didn't really intimidate me too much. And I guess providing some context as to where this podcast is really coming from, for me, if you don't mind me taking a couple of minutes of your time, is even up until about the last two, three odd years ago, I wasn't it wasn't really front and center in my mind, this death and dying topic conversation. And I came across a very dear friend of mine who was trying to heal his partner um, in his own way. And for all intents and purposes, we felt she had, she had died in the room. Um, and that was, um, at the time, I was using the word traumatizing. It's quite traumatizing to be a part of, but I'm not sure anymore. After especially having scoured through, I listened to Die Wise on 0.75 times the speed, so 40 hours <laughs> going through Die Wise. Potentially, we can unpack why it was less traumatizing and perhaps initiatory. Um, but then, you know, six months after that. I was second on scene for a very dear friend of mine who actually lost his partner to suicide. Um, and that was quite confronting in and of itself as well. And at the time, you know, being Mr. Personal Development, I had this whole awareness that it, this is not happening to me. Like I'm not a victim of, you know, being witness to such a thing. This is happening for me in some way. Um, but nonetheless, it's, you know, I've, Found it, and even now so, found it very confronting. Um, and I think that sets sort of the tone for me in terms of where this podcast is coming from today um, because it's a very different space from come of age like we did last time. And I guess that bleeds back into where I was starting my question was why is it so intimidating if death is a part of all of our lives when, you know, brown eyes, black hair definitely isn't? Well, I think the answer is because death is not part of most of our lives. In the, in the, in the Anglo-North America that I know about, and I leave it to others to translate into where they live, but 
Australia is much the same. <laughs> so. that, that was my guess, but I leave it to you to say. In those kinds of circumstances, the cultural reality includes death phobia, period. No qualifiers, no yabuts, that's there. And it's not incidental and it's not a minor keyed presence. It's a major keyed presence, yeah. So you could say that one of the things that your experience that you've just related reflects is what for many other cultures would be the very strange notion that at your age, you don't have much time in with dying people and with dead people and with your death and so forth. You know, there's other places and times, I don't need to tell you, where dying as a, as a ontological reality, not a hypothetical, not a conceptual reality, an ongoing, it belongs to us reality, is, uh, is par it's part of the deal. It's just part of the deal. It's not part of an impoverished deal or a uncivilized deal, which is what a lot of civilized people might understand that to mean. But that's not what it means. In fact, you could go further and say, the lack of ongoing encounters with real death is an impoverished and uncivilized circumstance. And it prevails in materially sophisticated places. Because I've been labeling it as death anxiety prior to coming to what you labeled it as death phobia. And I love in the book, someone asked you a question, where did this come from? And I sort of know the answer, but I'd love to ask the question nonetheless of you today. Where did the death phobia come from? Yeah. Well, the, sh the shorthand re uh, answer I I is the one I gave you a second ago. It comes from inexperience. But where did the inexperience come from? I mean, if people are dying every day, all day long, and they are, how can we be bereft of opportunities to be there? So bereft, in fact, that they become standout singular kinds of events that you wouldn't really go seeking. And you really wouldn't include as a mandatory part of your life's tuition. So speaking again in, from my corner of the world, and I, I know this historically, this is an overlap to where you are. <clears throat> this place is recently newly founded, not found, but founded by Europeans. And uh, one of the consequences of this founding was that Europeans, the Europeans who did come, who were the kind of first wave, if you will, they got here minus some fairly important things that nobody considered perhaps all that important at the time. One of them was old people. Nobody ever says stuff like this. It's not even on people's radar, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Nobody thinks. They just imagine like whole extended families came in. Well, that was much later. But the, the ordeal of the Middle Passage in those days was so extreme 
that you had to be made of fairly stout stuff or have an extraordinary piece of good luck to make it at all. And you know, the most frail and the, the least, um, uh, what should I say, the least um, capable people, especially metabolically, didn't make it. So by the time the Europeans washed up on shore, they were harried and they were bereft of the the full range of what a human cultured life looks like. And they were down to, you know, relatively speaking, young people and early middle-aged people, and that's it. And early middle-aged people are not a good fill-in for elders. So there's the first order of business. You begin the whole fantasy called America in an elder-free, or I would call it elder-bereft circumstance. And these people were harried, right? And the notion that that this is a new place and uh, all bets were off and you could start again. I mean, that didn't last a year if it was there at all. I, I suspect that's in, placed in the in the historical record with the benefit of hindsight. I would be very shocked if that was there at the time. I don't think it was. So it's very questionable people's presence here in the early going didn't make a lot of sense and was not very sustaining or sustainable or sustained. None of those things pertain. And uh, there was a lot of carnage, right? So this is plowed into the fields all over the place. One of the con consequences is a lack of cultural continuity through the generations. So the capacities that elders bring, the capacity for diminishment, capacity to be diminished and to be whole as a result that's a that's a particular qualification of elderhood when you don't have that be not surprised that in very short order the national mythology turns into a kind of be all you can be heroic journey stuff um you know uh self-made all of that deal that's we equate now with america yeah, this is where it was born. It was born in, to use a horribly overused word now, trauma. It was born not in success. It was born in a kind of unexpected, inarticulate misery. And that's the real beginning of the operation. So when you don't have any of that kind of wisdom available to you, what what becomes of you as you anticipate and draw up alongside your dying? And the answer is, you have people who are exercising the there but for the grace of God, go I kind of thing. They don't join you. They push you off the shore. They resort to things, to a kind of... Uh, sequence of mantras that are not death friendly or death wise or death literate here's what i mean i was asked so frequently in interviews not only in those years but in the years afterwards the following question yes they would say uh, you know I, people do have a hard time with dying but surely the people with an established 
spiritual practice and established affinity for religious things or a or a, a, a congregational life of some description. Surely these people had a better time of it for the, all the obvious reasons. And I would say, that's not what I saw. And they would say, no, but surely it's true though. And I would say, no, I'm telling you again, I didn't see that happen. And they, they kind of, they literally couldn't believe what I was saying. And, and here's the reason why. People with a kind of religious orientation brought the religious orientation to the realities of dying, but that's not where they got it. They got it, and I'm generalizing here, but they got they assumed their spiritual posture in part to contend with and to subvert the realities of dying, not to entertain them and undertake them. So ironically then, when you make uh, an adversary out of limits and frailties and endings, when you're in kind of peak performance condition, you know, show, showroom condition, and then you're not anymore, it's a shocking come down to realize that all your convictions are basically for naught. They've readied you not in the least for the realities that have come to call. So this is, I mean, it's it's pretty difficult to overstate the withering encounter that the realities of dying become for the religiously and spiritually convinced person. Yeah. I'm sure there's opportunities on both parts um, to, to recognize the failure within the individual, but potentially even within society. But where do you sort of draw the line in terms of this culture that's bereft of exposing us to dying um, or in, in, in intentionally insulates us from it is probably the way I would describe it um, with what seems to be the best of its intentions. Um is the failings more on a social, cultural, collective side, or is it the failure of the individual to not seek it out more on their behalf when there is an enriching that's available for them? It's an understandable, but I don't think a very useful distinction to make between the individual and the collective. Because at the end of the day, near as I can tell, culture appears kind of one person at a time. That's its manifestation. It's not, it doesn't hover above the crowd. It articulates itself in, in people's habits and customs and fears and tremblings and, and you know, night sweats. And really, this is where you find, so it's not surprising. But here's something that might strike you as surprising, which I think brings the question that you've asked into some kind of good relief. So my country, Canada, about, it feels like five or six years ago now, legalized euthanasia. Of course, they don't call it euthanasia because that carries a, a tang that nobody's wild about. And so they call it MAID, it's an acronym. You may have heard it, it means medical assistance in dying. 
Now, the notion is, of course, that this is a great leap forward in the direction of compassion. And how is the compassion articulated? And the answer is the control, big word here, the control that people felt they were losing as a consequence of suffering and all the attendant dilemmas is reconstituted and delivered back into the hands of the dying person. In other words, dying becomes a personal possession, not a responsibility. Okay. Here's, I'm going to tell you two things that happen. And th these are real observations, not my opinion. They're actually there already. The first thing is the notion would have been that by virtue of being, this is a death-friendly gesture or measure that's been taken. And so death-friendliness and death-literacy is bound to ensue as a result of the legalization of euthanasia. That's the rationale. Not only that, but much less suffering. Not only that, but the death phobia that I'm alluding to would have its, would have met its nemesis. It's would have met its uh, its equal in this increased compassionate gesture and the re the re. Uh, uh, acquisition of personal power and all that all that stuff i can barely say this stuff out loud to be honest with you because it's it's so demonstrably wrong well anyway none of those things have taken place here's what's happened instead very quietly the same government in the last six months or so has quietly put forward a proposition heading towards making it into law it's not sure that it will make it but but it's there and what they've done with the the legalization of euthanasia they're going to modify slightly in the following way whereas the legalization of euthanasia was associated with relieving suffering on the one side and proximity to death on the other side that had to be there in order for you to qualify for the euthanasia you see so you know what they're prepared to do now. They're prepared to extend the benefit of euthanasia to people who are not dying, who will not in any imminent sense of the term die of the circumstances that bring them to the attention of the uh, qualifying bodies who adjudicate these matters. In other words, people who, have, who are suffering chronically, but not mortally are about to qualify for the same treatment. Wow, does that sound death-friendly to you? Does it sound death-literate? Does it sound death-wise? Or does it sound like the great grief and suffering bypass that it actually is? And it's saying, not only do you not have to die, you don't have to suffer either. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not advocating suffering as some kind of moral correction, not in the least. But I am acknowledging, and I don't think it's a foolhardy thing to do, that knowing how to suffer is part of your humanity. It's where it, it appears. There's other manifestations of it too. But surely to God, that's one of them. And when your ability to suffer is compromised legally, governmentally 
by by you being told in, in myriad ways that you don't have to suffer. So you don't have to learn the skills. So all of this becomes optional. Wow, that sounds like a consumer culture's idea of a good time, doesn't it? And that's what it's become. So do I think it's a collective failing or do I think it's an individual failing? And the answer is yes. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It's really not lost in me reading through DIYs and listening to you share just the propensity we have um, for control and just how much life seems to have and in this particular refrain as well, probably death invites us in to surrender and yet it seems so so hard is that what is so hard about dying um can you answer that and maybe uh, and also answer what's so hard about dying sure uh i should say i don't know everything on these matters okay so that's an important caveat <laughs> noted you know a little bit more than me so it's me asking the question so it's not omniscient speaking, it's just experience. There's a difference. Okay. Well, fear is real. It's not an illusion. Fear belongs. If you're not fearful from time to time, you don't get it. It's like not being able to feel pain. That's not a good thing. It's uh, these are these are out at the edges of your capacity, and and they're there to be learned, yeah, and they contribute to your wholeness. It seems to me. Well, first of all, to to be as large-hearted as I can be in the question, uh, life can be habit-forming, and you can genuinely want to be alive and it's not a it's not a failing or a weakness or i mean it's important to say there's such a thing as good days and there's such a thing as great gratitude for being alive and all of that counts but your life 
you know, it, it doesn't belong to you. It's, I mean, it's, there's so much evidence that this is the case. And then there's equal and abounding evidence that this is a kind of insult to a consumer culture that's addicted to confidence and to mastery. And uh, the notion that you actually have to work, that you don't know everything, and that your feelings are not this, the sum total of life. I mean, these things are insults to, you know, the majority of people today. I don't know how that happened, but there we are. And domain and dominion and exclusivity and um, the, the sense that you should get a vote on everything that comes your way. This is, you know, this would have been unconscionable to most people's grandparents. So it's happened, that, that kind of thing has happened with unnerving rapidity in the last generation and a half, it seems. And I suppose that that generation or those generations can answer for it if they're so inclined. I just marvel at the notion that, that we are this far down the road towards a kind of mindless, numb um, diminishment of the world that's been entrusted to us. And still, it doesn't seem to occur to us, even with the pandemic, to help with the realization that you're simply not the boss, and it's not a bad thing. That life is bigger than your lifespan, and it's not a bad thing. But when you get to be here, consider it as near as we can tell, this could be it, right? I don't know myself, but let's imagine for the moment that this is it. How do you translate that into a daily understanding? How many times was I regaled with and challenged in public uh, talks that I used to give for years and years that everybody knows they're going to die, you're making a big deal over nothing? And I would say, you know, if everybody knew they're going to die, I would have had no job to do in the death trade. Because it's a foregone conclusion. It's self-evident. <laughs> and it's, in, it's a liberally distributed understanding. But it's not, though. Because there's no sign of the knowledge. I shouldn't say no sign. There's not a persuasive presence to the knowledge. Let, let me elaborate what I mean by that last thing for a second. So you're, you may be old enough to remember, um, I certainly can remember the so-called gas crisis of the, the shortage that suddenly materialized. I think this was in the 1970s, but I remember the event, if I don't remember the, the location and the, the time frame of it. But there's people lined up at the pumps forever and there's fist fights at the pumps and, and hoarding and, you know, and all of that. Did we know at the time and thereafter that there's enough oil for everybody? It's just not equally distributed, but there is enough oil for our needs for kind of ever. Now, this is a very uh, uh, unsavory thing to say today, but what I'm telling you is if you would have asked people at the time do we know there's enough oil? The answer would have been yes. Now, in actual fact, that was a lie. But it didn't mean we didn't know it. 
you understand the distinction I'm making here. We did know it. We knew a thing that wasn't true. Okay, so if you take out oil and put in dye in exactly the same formulation, what do you get? Do we know that we're going to die? The answer is you can't find the evidence that we know. In the abstract, in a, for the purposes of discussion like we're doing now, virtually anybody you'd speak to would probably, it, with, with a few uh, sort of new age exceptions, but most people would acknowledge, yes, they know they're going to die. And the next question would be, so how does it show itself in your life? This knowledge, not the dying thing, the knowledge thing. Where is it? What's it doing? How do you know that you know? What is there in your daily life that suggests that this thing is a known thing and not a feared thing or a suspected thing or a traumatizing thing, or, but it's actually a known thing? The answer is, you'll be hard-pressed to make the case because by and large, it's not known. And so in a circumstance like that, when it comes anyway, you know, be not surprised that we start laying claim to things that we can't quite own. So we declare a kind of sovereignty over these matters. And before you know it, you're writing your advanced directives and your living wills and you're the boss and it's patient-centered care and you're the Elvis in your own dying, right? And and everything rotates around your whims and your your convictions and your beliefs and and everybody's there to deliver on your right to a good death, even though nothing in your life has prepared you for the work that you yourself have to have to do to manage this good death up into the light. So where is this supposed to come from? If your life has been lived minus all this stuff, and all of a sudden you realize, man, the, the kind of undue pressure or worse, that is placed upon the paid professionals, who I'm not defending, by the way, but that the, the, the onus is placed upon them to deliver to the dying person something that their life did not prepare them for is very disfiguring. And it's, again, it's a, it's a social dilemma, ultimately, because it's, un, it's unchallengeable socially, but individually, it becomes these things become frailties and foibles and and miscalculations or worse. So that's some of the things that go on, I think. There's two questions emerging at my end, and I'll go with the one that first emerged. Is one of the I'm reflecting affectionately towards the, the latter chapters of your book. And um I guess it's, yeah, it probably speaks to just how beautifully written it is that your affection for blue is contagious. <laughs> um, yeah, is one of the symptoms, well, speaking to one of the symptoms that I can speak to that it's becoming more knowledge than abstract is this taking a glance at you know, even family and recognizing that these moments are, sounds cheesy to say cherished, but that these moments, I 
seeing them almost in the negative of like almost like a picture like I can sort of see the positive which is you know what's been developed but then also at the same moment recognizing now that I've got kids and looking at the negative of that going what if that wasn't there and at some point it's like the negative also is that I won't be here like not that it's a bad thing negative but more so that it's a yeah the part of the picture of the negative um and referring back to blue and his prayer you know that my heart is broken and I'm, I'm probably butchering it but I don't want it to change or I don't want it to be and I want it to be so and um is that a what he said was my heart is broken I never want it to mend yeah thank you is that a sign and a symptom that knowledge is transpiring precipitating in in his case it it was a sign that it had long ago hatched i would say it wasn't gathering it it was manifest he was one of those he's one of those that you're you're not waiting for the other shoe to drop he he was one of those yeah yeah but that's what it can look like among the more achieved among us that the realization that i'm here at the end of my day it's gotten dark in the sky since you and i began to speak this is one less day for me to occupy see when i used to try to orient dying people to their lives i would say something like Okay, so to give both of us something to work with, I'm going to ask you a simple question. Will you see another spring? It sounds like a, a chronological question, but it's not. It's of the, of the order of what you've been saying in the last two or three minutes. You know, because how you answer it, I mean, you can feel the gravitational pull of yes as if somehow this is life affirming. It's not, particularly if it's not true. The greater likelihood in the death trade is, no, you will not see another spring. You've already seen the last spring you're going to see. How do you know? Because that's the way it is most of the time. That's how. Yeah, but I could be the exception. Is that what you want to be? You don't want to you don't want the lion's share of people's example to be trustworthy and available to you. You want that one streaking star across the sky that's going to escape all the odds. That's who you want to be. That's the story you want to tell over and over again. Well, you know what I'm going to tell you. That is the story that gets told over and over again. And so I gave, it my, I gave myself the responsibility years ago that went something like this. Okay, you tell the story of the one who miraculously did not die on schedule. I'll tell the story of the 399 who did, in the last hour since you and I began to speak, die on schedule. And if we both tell these stories, then all the stories will be told and will be available. But you know what I'm going to tell you? 
the 399 do not get their day. They don't get their song. No. No, they don't. And here's the thing. You and I are probably going to be amongst the 399. There. But much more importantly than that, you have children. I, I gather what, what you said a moment ago. I do as well. Here's the possibly dark little secret. Your kids and mine are likely to be amongst those 399 too. And so what are we going to do during our lifetimes to make being part of the 399 to be an honorable thing and a mandatory thing and a thing that we must occupy in order to help people detox from this notion that it's not supposed to happen. So there's work to be done, but the work won't come from hope. The work will come from realization. In other words, it really comes from heartbreak. That's where the understanding of the labor is really born. It's born in heartbreak. And in the death trade, the principal job generally was to make people feel better either anatomically or metabolically or psychically or spiritually, just make them feel better. But they're dying for God's sake. How do you propose to make dying people feel better? And the answer is obscure their dying and limit the range of their sensoria so that you can micromanage where the stimulation comes from. What? How did that actually happen? It happened every day, all day long. You're not a dying person. You're a person living with cancer. What happened to the dying? Gone. Now you're living one day at a time and you are you sound like a fridge magnet. You know, a, say, a saying on the back of a fridge magnet. You're just living every day. You know, you're the envy of all the be here now crowd. Oh my God, when do you get to die? The answer is, you don't really. You get to expire, but you don't get to die. And that is a poverty that no culture can bear for very long. One of the biggest takeaways for me from Die Wise, which there was a lot, is this invitation can't say I've wholly absorbed it just yet, um, but this invitation for me that my death actually doesn't belong to me. And I guess in my immediate sort of circumstance that it belongs to my loved ones, um, maybe if we lived in a different time, it would belong to my community, um, my village. Um, but for now belongs to my immediate loved ones. Can you expand on what that means for those that may be introduced to this for the first time in this podcast? Well, you can, you practice it not belonging to you with your place. That's where you practice. If you happen to own, I'm going to put heavy quotation marks around the owning, Let's say you own a house on a small piece of land just outside of town, whatever it is, right? 
and and you have a sense of <laughs> I don't know some kind of um, quiet victory that you manage your affairs such that you could afford it, etc. and so on. And then some guy who sounds and looks a little bit like me says something in the order of, it's not yours though, you understand. It's not going where you're going. There's nothing you can do to micromanage that circumstance. That's already true. It's true now. It's not gonna be true in the future. It's true now that you don't own it. Never mind what the government says. Never mind what the trespassing laws say. You know in your heart, it's not coming with you. And you also know that it's a living thing. So how do you practice caring for a living thing that will last longer than you? There. Now that's what you said, restated. And if you can do it with a piece of land, you might be able to do it with your dying. But if you don't practice before the time comes, man, you're going to be such an awkward amateur in these matters. You won't even know how to think about it. Never mind what to do. Why do we have to learn how to die? Well, you've, there's a, there's a prior condition that kind of answers the question. And the condition is, you have to learn that you're going to die. And without that, you won't learn how to die. You actually have to learn that you won't last forever. Now, as ludicrous as that might sound to you, I can promise you that the, the instinct to pass over that detail is so remarkably strong in a be-all-you-can-be culture. So I'm sorry to say this, but the self-enhancement industry has a lot to answer for in these matters. You can't be all you can be and die too. I wish you could, but there's no room in maximum performance for frailty. There really and genuinely isn't. And I think most people hearing this after their initial reactivity to that might be able to let that in long enough to think about it. But it's a regime of intolerance, self-improvement. That's really how it works. There's no room for the ordinary guy. Everybody's got to peek out constantly. So then your dying turns into what? Another exercise in peak performance. Oh my God, it never ends. No, there's no, there's no limit above to, <laughs> to, to make this thing sane. What's present for me is even, well, the the ideology of the Stoics that's being evangelized, which is, you know, even in the personal development space, which is keep your death front and center in your mind, know that you're going to die to live the fullest, richest life. Um, your sentiments on that? Yeah, I would leave the second part out. 
the qualifier about to live your deepest, richest life. That's not why. It's utterly not why. That's just getting paid through the back door. <laughs> See, what I'm saying is, <laughs> it's what you said a few minutes ago. I'm just giving it back to you what you said a moment ago. What you said was, if my death doesn't belong to me, it actually belongs to my people. Let's just use that word for now. Okay, so that's that's who you're doing it for. Because, I, and this I can promise you, the circumstances of your dying will last longer than what most people remember about you. The story that's told of how you died is more enduring than your dying will ever be. It'll last much longer. And the consequences will emanate like, like a pebble in a pond. And if you understand that, then you realize that your dying is in part a responsibility you have to other people. They will learn some very lingering stories about what the endings of life are from how you do it. And they could learn some very grim stories indeed if you're not alert to the consequences. In that sense, you could say there's some parallel with uh, suicide. Suicide may indeed be a personal right and an exercise of freedom and discernment. And I'm not sure I, I see it or understand things in that set, but the case can easily be made. So I'm not disputing that it can be made. Here's the thing, though. If you successfully exercise your right to self-destruction, be assured that on this side of the veil, you will not live one of the consequences you put into motion by being successful. We, on the other hand, we will live them all. Does this moderate in any way the austerity and the particularity of your right? I would hope in a conscious culture it would. It becomes remarkably difficult to sort it out, but the sorting needs to be done uh, with, a, with a kind of, with your heart engaged. So it's not a matter of belief, it's a matter of observation. And the consequences of suicide, most people are vaguely alert to the fact that it's almost across the board, corrosive and destructive, right? So the moral of the story, and there, there certainly are morals to the story, include the following. The consequences of your life are not yours to adjudicate. You contribute to their generation. You might even contribute to their distribution, but you certainly don't contribute to whether or not they have consequence for others. They do. And so your obligation is to proceed accordingly, you see. That's what makes you a citizen and not a boss, not a proprietor, something closer to an innkeeper. And it's your life 
that inhabits all the rooms in your inn. And it comes and it goes and it wrecks the furniture, you know, and it fails to pay the bills and, and you're overseeing all of this. And so finally, the other day, I had a, a couple here talking to me and uh, the, the man who'd come very close to death the week before uh, on the operating table and so on. He convened, or his friends convened on his behalf, something that everybody gleefully called a living wake. And how could anybody possibly be troubled, as I am about to be, about something called a living wake? Well, here's the dilemma. In order to have a wake, somebody has to die. That's what it means. You don't get to decide it doesn't mean that. That's what it means. Now, if the if the almost dead person is there with you, it's not awake. You could call it a celebration of life if you want to, or any of other names might be available. Just call it a party. Call it a near-death experience celebration. But don't call it awake, because awake is what happens in the aftermath of something ending. Okay, and so they were they were in terrible straits between the two of them, because he'd had he believed he'd had this kind of transformative experience, but the transformation began and ended with him. She, on the other hand, who'd lived out all of the, you know, sitting by herself in the opera in the excuse me the family room for hours and being distinctly unsupported by the hospital and all of that stuff was completely missed, not only by him, but by all the celebrants as well. So you have to be gone for your life to begin to take on its meaning. Because that's what awake is. It's the initiation of the storytelling that will constitute the meaning of your life as it was lived among us. The meaning of your life is our job, not your job. Your job is to live the life and then stop. It's pretty hard to do if you don't know anything about endings. There's a really interesting piece in there about the way you reflect on even Jesus's last supper and how he fed the disciples, the news of his passing. Could you share that with everybody? Sure. A real damper, wasn't he? As, as they would call him today, a real buzzkill. You can't make me laugh about these deep, <laughs> stop it. <stop. laughs> In a general sort of way, I think most people are alert to the story. So there's a thing that retroactively is called the Last Supper. Uh, the powers that be are incoming, and they're just on the periphery, just beyond the campfire light, right? And they're incoming, and one from among you has deserted the ranks and is trading their, their life's purpose for a handful of gold and 
you know, it's a pretty compelling story. And then in the midst of all of this, it becomes apparently, I can only say apparently, more than clear to him that this is likely his, it's certainly his last night occupying the life that he's occupied until now. Whether he gets to live, uh, you know, and lingering next 36 hours is kind of besides the point at that, at that juncture. And so what does he do with this foreknowledge? And the story says, you know, they had to pass over as usual. And then he, he did something alchemical. He had the, the bread and he said, this is me going. This is me gone. Eat it now and be nourished thereby for the challenging time to come. Not baptized against it. Nourished by it instead. Because the breaking of the heart is oncoming. And nothing will be as it was. And the depth of our yearning after a better day will not be spared. I mean, all this stuff is in the mix. No, It's exceedingly dramatic in the best sense of the term. And then he takes the wine, which he didn't invent. I mean, this stuff was all, you know, de, de rigueur for the, the, the spirituality of the time. But he, he submitted it to alchemy of a kind, a kind of a, a kind of radiation. And the radiation was ending. And he's never going to get to be an old man. As far as we know, never going to get to marry, never get to have kids, never get to normal life extension events as those things can be. He's going to die as a young man. And it looks like he's seen it. He puts that into the cup and he says, drink the ending of what we tried to do together. If you drink it, it won't be gone, though it will end. And so, that, I mean, this appears in the context is that I was working with a, a clergyman who was dying of lung cancer, who refused to die in front of his parishioners, to be a dying man in front of his parishioners. So he he just soldiered on, you know, business as usual, wheezy and bent over, you know, and gray. And everyone could see it, but no one said it. And all the exit strategies at the church door, you know, at noon and all that stuff was all basically in contravention of the Jesus example that had been available to this man that he'd preached about all these years. And when the time came for him to take up the Jesus example, the imitation of Christ as it's called, that's not what he did. He opted for what he thought was compassion. Don't rub people's face in it. It's already hard enough life, long week. On Sunday, they need a break. As you may remember, that's the way the text goes. On, sun on Sunday, you need a break from life. So the, of all things to call it, communion. The act of communing. Table fellowship. 
that's that's the moment he chose to lay it down. And I'm not saying this as an advocate of the Jesus story or Christianity. I, I'm, I don't believe myself to be a Christian, for example. But I know a powerful presence of unquenched humanity when I see it. And that's surely what that was. Further to your contemplations on soil have been extremely nourishing for myself. The idea that our death actually is a breeding ground for the new in some way. Um, am I getting it somewhat right? Can you explain that? Yeah, but you could leave out the qualifier in some way. <laughs> <laughs> you could say in every way. Okay, so if I were to be able to go just on the other side of the window that's here and reach into the one of the gardens that's just there and take a pinch of what's there and bring it back and hold in the palm of my hand and stretch it out to you and I... And if I, if I didn't cue you on this matter, and I just said to you, what's this? Simple question. What is it? And you didn't know what I had done, right? But there it is. And let's imagine the videos, the quality is good enough that you can discern this, what's in the palm of my hand. Depending on your training, depending on how clever you want to sound, depending on a host of other variables, you could say things very abstractly, like, Ooh, it's a kind of life force, or it's a Gaia thing, or, uh, or if you were slightly more embodied, you might say um, decayed vegetable matter for vegetables. The chances of you saying life, that's what you have in your hand, life, it's quite high. And that's the most egregious failure to see of all the answers that are available. Here's why. It's, it's kind of understandable, you know, in a kind of rah-rah sense of the term, you know, life's dirt and dirt's life. But that's not how uh, dirt happens. Dirt doesn't happen because stuff lives. Dirt happened because stuff dies. There's no negotiation on the matter. That's what it means. If everything just kept living, there'd be no dirt. And as North Americans continue to defy the average age span and insist on living and living and living, there is, from a psychic point of view, less and less dirt for the young people to be planted in and to grow from. That's not a symbol. That's a psychic fact of life in Anglo-North America now. That's where, quote, where have the elders gone? That's part of the answer. So as a farmer, as a working farmer, you know, nominally, because I'm traveling so much, but I do have people to help, so it's ongoing. But I can tell you that without the demise of most of our plans through the summer and into the fall, which is just beginning now, the fall demise, you call it harvest, 
the reaping and all of that. Without that, there'd be no life come the spring. So life is not rooted in living. It sounds good on a t-shirt, but it's not observably true. Life is a consuming thing, not a consumed thing. And what life consumes is all the lives that preceded it. That's what it hoovers up. That's what it inhales. That's what it, that's its abundance, you see. And so the order of the day is when it's your turn, contribute in some nominal way to that which sustained you. You can't do that by staying high and dry, psychically and spiritually. You have to do that by being literally interred, right? Grounded. That's why we use the term. That's what it really means. To be grounded is to, is to get it, you see, and to be had by the ground that preceded you, such that there's a little more than there was in the ground before you came along. That's a pretty good deal, really. And so, I mean, one more story. It's a kind of pastoralist story and uh, not a story I'm, a ma I'm making up. I have in a, in, a, in a minor way observed it. But it goes like this. <clears throat> Most people in the world who look like me, their ancestry includes uh, what used to be called transhumance. People don't use the word anymore. But it literally means the following of your flocks up the mountain in the summer to take advantage of the pastures and down off the, the harsh heights in the winter, you know, to, to survive and huddle up down below. Now, this doesn't happen in a day. So one of the things that happens in that up and down cycle is that not unlike the sheep from time to time, the people, the shepherds from time to time die in the course of this great long pilgrimage up and down. And so there's no fixed cemetery for people in this way of life. They are planted along the way, you see. Now, as it happens, and we all know this, that if there's enough, uh, if the body's close enough to the surface, then in disintegration, the surface uh, growth, the grasses in particular, are actually enhanced by the decomposition of the body, yeah? Now we know this symbolically, but the sheep know it energetically and dietarily. I, know, I don't think that's a word, dietetically, whatever the word is. Okay, so what they do, they're following their nose to the good grass. And where does it lead them? It leads them to the cemetery. You see? Now, the shepherd, seeing all of this unfold, is not very hard-pressed to realize a fundamental mythic fact that by virtue of the moral intelligence of the sheep and by virtue of the sheep's milk, the, the shepherd's ancestors are keeping the shepherd alive through the agency of the sheep, you see? Sounds like a covenant, doesn't it? Because it is. We used to know stuff like this. It's not that far away even now, not in distance. 
but in memory distance, it's very far away and deep. So I tell these stories to jog the memory, not to make people feel bad about living in the suburbs. To, to do something about the memory, to, to revive it in some fashion, to see if you can engineer something like a modern day equivalent of that kind of understanding. And you can't do it if you stay away from the grind and from the dirt of the story. Still not sure if this is the right time to ask this question, but I made a note to ask you this today. Stephen, well, even you can contest to the question if you wish as well. Actually, I'll pre-qualify the question with that. How do you, steeped in what would be from the outside looking in such dense subject matter, remain chipper. <laughs> That's funny. That presumes that I do remain chipper. <laughs> this is why I said, yeah, you can contest to the question all you wish. <laughs> yeah. Well, the truth, the truth, honestly, though, is that I, I am probably heartbroken a lot of the time. Sometimes it's palpable. I mean, even to me, it's palpable. Sometimes it's arresting. Today was one of those days. It's just how it goes sometimes. You don't exactly know why, or you do. And it's a kind of weather system that um, has its own power and consequence that you have to find a way, especially as you get older, that you're not going to have this resilient bounce back thing that you have to do what Blue said. Your heart's broken. And if it mends prematurely, the merits of the brokenness are lost upon you. Right? And then the other half of the story is, and it's not a 50-50 split, you know, that most of life is not composed of stuff you love. It isn't. Or, or you enjoy, or you benefit directly and obviously from. If you want to be life-affirming, you have to affirm all of that stuff, not just the upside stuff, the whole crazy thing, right? It doesn't mean everything's secretly great. It isn't, especially not now, okay? But, but the solution to heartbreak is not less heart. That won't get you less brokenness. And the heart is remarkably um, it seems crafted with fissures, not with solidity. I mean, even anatomically, it seems to be the case. There's so much, there's so many moving parts to the thing that it can't conceivably <laughs> endure. As a, as a whole un, unchallenged mass. It seems to be in the act of, of um, wearing down, you could say, yeah? 
So that's the diminishment I was talking about earlier that constitutes elderhood, is that you, your, your old understanding of happiness has, has succumbed to your understanding of life. And you realize happiness belongs, but there's an awful lot of things that have to leave you alone as a modern person for you to be, quote, happy. If you can't be happy in the teeth of the storm, you probably can't be happy when there's peace in the valley. So that's the kind of throwdown that I would, you know, respond with. And I say that to myself. It's enormously hard work to to engage in the amens of life. But I would translate for you and people listening what amen means, as far as I can tell. It's a two-part definition. First part means, man, I do not get it. It's too big. It's too vast. It's too hurtful. It's too mysterious. The powers that be are arrayed against sanity. We could just keep going. That's it's all so. It's there. I don't get it. it. My capacity to understand is eclipsed by an ordinary day. God, never mind the peak stuff. Right. Okay, what's the other half of amen mean then? Is there anything else? There is. When you say amen, you're saying all of that, and then you're saying, I'm in. I'm in. That's all. I'm not pulling back. I'm not charging to the front of the line. I'm in. I don't know how to translate that yet, but I am. And this seems to me to be held in, in beautiful high relief by a Provencal prayer, as I understand it, come from about the 12th century in uh, the Mediterranean, southern France, and so on. And it's remarkably available to you as a rem as a memorable thing because of its brevity and because of its its uh, lancing quality. And this is what it is. Simply says, God, help me. My boat is so small. Your sea, so immense. You notice what the prayer doesn't say. Prayer doesn't say, could you make my boat bigger? Doesn't say, could you tone down the sea thing and all the storms? And the... It doesn't ask for change. It just says, help me. Doesn't say, make everything perfect so I get a chance at a decent day. It's not what it says. The spirit of that prayer is breathtakingly life-affirming. It's just not lying. And it's not playing God for a, a, a buffoon. It'll, it'll do in a pinch, that prayer. I have to say, partaking in your work is really messes with your day. 
<laughs> shifted the ground underneath my feet at the very least um, on what I believe to be life-affirming in a very end leaning into what you shared earlier in a very grounded sense of the word. Well, I'm glad. <laughs> Would be. <laughs> I'm glad to be helped that way. As disconcerting as it may be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Your intentions, Stephen, with uh, these nights of grief and mystery, you're uh, gracing our shores here in Australia. And I, for one, looking forward to it wholeheartedly. Um, speaking to my wife, then I said, um, I know you're probably not coming, but my son and I are. She was like, your son? And I was like, if you got any questions about me bringing a son along to, you know, nights about grief and mystery, <laughs> read the book. <laughs> and that was my, that was my, um, my new, again, shifting of the soils beneath my feet on life affirming so i'm looking forward to it um what are your intentions because like you said you know you've got your farm you've got your work there's plenty on your plate um yeah what brings you to our soils what encourages you to do such a thing yeah and, and don't don't leave out the fact that i'm not a kid <laughs> yes you were talking about faring seas and the ability to metabolize <laughs> yeah i remember yes touch wood yeah. don't leave out the really bad airplane food and on and on and on so that's part of the reality no i mean in no particular order my intention is to sing in key <laughs> okay <laughs> it's to try to remember the words it's to hit the mark I'm not joking. I mean, there's other things too, but that's certainly there. So Nights of Grief and Mystery is a, a ceremony that you could mistake for an evening's entertainment. I have, nothing, I have no problem with entertainment, but I have no investment in distraction. The notion that it's already hard enough as it is, like that like that preacher man said, so leave the people alone on Sunday. I don't think that's respectful in a troubled time, to be honest. And so this is an exceedingly respectful event, but we respect the audience and we respect their intelligence. And so we're not selling them a salve, a balm, a cure-all, you know, a, a, a pressure relief valve or anything of the kind. We're not selling anything. We're, we're finding a way to write a love letter to the particulars of place in a particularly troubled time for two hours with no intermission, no apologies, but the occasional plea for forgiveness instead. It's pretty direct, but I think it's an act of genuine regard for what humans are capable of and for what the world needs from us now. 
oh, it's a kind of ecology thing. No, it's not an ecology thing at all. But the realities of what I'm alluding to by things like ecology thing, they're there. You'll discern them for sure. There's a sense of urgency to the matter that's ongoing through the evening. I can't explain to you why people stand up and applaud this thing and ask for more. I can't. Do they every night? No, they don't every night. We're just in Scandinavia, which is not known for its encores, I'm, I'm guessing. And almost every night across Sweden and Norway, that's what happened. And this is, this is in English. It's not even their first language. And they're looking at each other confused on their feet, like, is this what we do? I don't know what to do. It's the thing that just happened. It's so vast and so unexpected and so unmodern in the sort of the contemporary hipster sense of the term. And yet something about my heart moves in its direction even so. I know the same thing happens to me and I'm the one doing it. So it's a joy, you know, and it's a privilege and it's a, it's a prayer and it's a lamentation and it's a love letter but it's not a get well card and it means what it says and it knows where some of the darkness is you know where the monsters are and it goes there too and it ends with a piece called regrets but it does not end regretfully Try to clear customs with that kind of explanation. I have. I'll never do it again. <laughs> uh, the force of the borders. <laughs> when one thing ends and another begins. Stephen, I can feel us wrapping up and there's a young man in me that recognizes yourself for myself as an elder and I know you've written a lot on on elderhood and you've also cleared a lot up around the utility of hope in die wise so when ask you what's your hope for a young man such as myself but more is there a passion in the brokenheartedness for those that are younger than yourself for how we approach some of the subject matter that you have seemed to dedicated your life towards? Yes, to the second question, but no to the first. I'm not aware, I mean, I'm really thinking about it as you're asking. I'm not, I'm not aware of harboring a particular hope for you and your generation, for anyone in particular. Why not? Am I withholding that? No. Am I withdrawing it? No. Then what am I doing? I'm simply doing something else. 
I'm not hovering around the mythical better day that's not here. I'm not shaming that. I'm just leaving it to others. There's only so much work uh, 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 you know, one person can undertake. That's probably not my work. My work is something closer to this. If we can inhabit this crater, this, this detonation place that we've mistaken for a self-made home, then I suspect we're capable of a better day. But if we can't occupy the consequences of the way we've lived collectively, there's nothing to hope for, you see, because it'll be more of the same and more of the same. I could quote a, a little piece from um, Knights of Grief and Mystery, if I can remember it. it just, it's a piece called Fate. It's quite long, it's operatic, it's in four distinct movements with a kind of uh, tonality that's different from one to the next. And basically it is that love letter to young people that I was alluding to earlier. And I, I think in the introduction, I call it that. And there's a piece in there towards the, I think it's the third act. And if I remember right, the, the libretto goes like this. When there's finally no hope left, but not until then, that's when you leave a scent in the air of what some people did in a time of trouble like this time. Because the people to come, they're going to need that. They're going to need to know that they come from people who are worthy of coming from. And you don't hope you'll be worthy. You get worthy now. That's what time it is. That's my answer to what you asked. As I said before, I'm really looking forward to Nights of Grief and Mystery. Um, yeah. It's fun. I mean, I have to tell you, there's a lot of fun in it. People laugh outrageously. They say, they say to me in the book signing lineup afterwards, you're funny, they say. Like it's so counterintuitive, it doesn't make any sense. But, but funny belongs to the heartbreak, you see. They're not mutually exclusive. It's pretty hard to laugh, especially down here, if your heart doesn't know how to break alongside the laughter, yeah? We, we, you know this intuitively, you know. So the Knights of Grief and Mystery is not attempting to be comedic at the expense of tragedy. That's all. It's trying to leave a seat at the table for the hard times. So you don't have to go looking for them. You found them if you come to our show. But it doesn't get worse from seeing them. It gets deeper. It gets more workable. It gets more possible as a result of that. That's what we're bringing. 
And that's why, you know, we know how lucky we are that a country opens itself to the possibility that you come from away and you might be worth the trouble. And that's what's happened every time I've come down to your country. And it looks like it's it's because we're sold out of a few places already. And it's it, it amazes me. And I'm very gratified and very honored about it. So with no hype intended, we are deeply looking forward to this. And uh, as possibly the last time we come, because you never know, right? The slings and arrows, the friggin' travel bans, the you never know. So you occupy as best as you can the grace note, the grace period that you suddenly find yourself in. And you're in another country on the other side of the world. And you're saying, well, we're about to go to church now. And off you go. Amen. Exactly. Amen too. <laughs> Stephen, it will be rude of me not to thank you for today's sharing yourself so abundantly here with us. I um yeah, to say I'm deeply grateful is pales in comparison to how I truly feel. It's uh yeah, it's it is a good start. I think I have to have to oblige the customs at the very least. Um and yeah, usually I find myself saying that, you know, we we get to stand in this conversation today based on the shoulders of your life's work. And in your particular instance, I would say, you know, it it's more than more than just your own life's work. It's also, you know, the passing of so many other people that you've exposed yourself to that has been so many countless people's work of their life and literally their life's potentially their greatest work. I it's not lost upon me this just the opportunity that I've had here to share with you today and hopefully this has illuminated um yeah many people um on their path and it's I'm just so grateful for you especially the way you show up the way you yeah just the work that you open ourselves up to and the eloquence with which you challenge our sensibilities um, when they're based upon such collective frailties at dawn. Yeah, thank you so much for you. I'm really grateful. You're welcome. I'm, I am grateful too. Thanks so much for the invitation. Thank you so much for tuning in to this amazing episode of the Inspired Evolution. Without you, the Inspired Evolution tribe, this podcast would not be what it is today. Thank you so much for your love and your support. Thank you so much for being so inspired to evolve. It's truly inspiring. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the Inspired Evolution on YouTube, the home of the Inspired Evolution's video podcast. We release inspiring conversations such as this every week, along with guided meditations and empowering insights all designed to help you grow and evolve. Honestly, your subscription on YouTube to the channel helps us out a great deal. And one of the other benefits, if you're having any insights or shifts from these episodes that you want to chat about, or if you'd like to leave myself or the guest a message, please do so in the comments on YouTube. I truly look forward to hearing from you. And as always, Tribe, remember to stay inspired and keep evolving.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.